The following message is by Pastor John Piper. More information from Desiring God Ministries is available at www.desiringgod.org. Please turn with me to today's sermon text, which is Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith faith which he had had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Now why is Paul so riveted on this truth that a divine righteousness is credited to people by faith apart from works? Why is he so riveted on this that he dwells on it as long as he does? We're tempted to say, those of you who've been with us now for some weeks, we're tempted to say, we got it. We got it in 3.22. We got it in 3.28. We got it in the picture of Abraham in 4.1-5. We got it in the blessing of David in 4.6-8. We got it. And he keeps going. Keeps going right on through chapter 4, right on through chapter 5. Why? Why is this man so riveted in the most important letter he ever wrote on this truth that there is a divine righteousness credited to people through faith apart from works. Now, so far up through this text, the answer to that question is fourfold. There are four reasons why he is so fixed on this. Two of them we've already seen. Two of them are in this text. So let me rehearse the two we've seen and then unpack the flow of those verses that were just read and see the next two reasons and build our message today around those four reasons for why Paul is so riveted on the doctrine of justification by faith apart from works. But before we do that, I want to pray that God would give us the help we need to preach and to listen. So let's pause and ask him to. You've told us in the book of James that you have not because you ask not. So we would not fail here at this most crucial hour for some of us to ask. Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, from the Father. Come, give me, I pray, an anointing for this ministry of the word and grant a special gift of heart-engaged hearing 
with the mind and the affections for all in this room. Oh God, leave us not, I beg of you, to our own resources. But come, grant a kind of prophetic gift so that the words that are spoken here are such that they penetrate to crevices and depths of human hearts and souls that could not be touched in any other way but by the divine work of God. So come and help me now and all of us. Save sinners, strengthen saints, and accomplish these four things that we're about to talk about. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Reason number one for why Paul is so riveted with the truth that there is a divine righteousness credited to the account of people who have faith in him and apart from works. Reason number one, because it undermines boasting, which Paul is very eager to do. We saw it mainly in 3.27 and 28. Where then is boasting? Answer, it is excluded. By what kind of law? A law of works? No, a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So that teaching undermines boasting. Now, why would anybody want to do that in the 20th century America that I live in? I mean, the last thing anybody wants to do today is undermine boasting. We live in the most self-assertive, self-exalting, self-esteeming, self-aggrandizing age that ever was, as far as I can tell, in your face self. It's the name of a magazine. I've only seen it in airports, but I've never picked it up. But I read bumper stickers. I read them between home and church. Pagan and proud of it. I smoke and I vote. Get in touch with your inner grown-up for a change. It's just kind of a feisty, in-your-face atmosphere that we live in. And just listen to the radio. I mean, what are the most popular radio programs? They are programs of those who have a gift for feisty, in-your-face, put-down one-liners that cut you off and make you look stupid. That is prized in our day. To have a gift of the one-liner that ends the conversation and makes everybody wish they could have said it. That's what we prize. Politicians, preachers, the public figures, there's a kind of uh, bravado about their bearing, a kind of 
know it all. We don't make mistakes. We answer all questions, attitude. And if you ask us one we don't know, we'll answer the one we do know and pretend like the king still has clothes on. It's, a, it's an atmosphere in which why would anybody want to undermine this? This is what we're about. So why is Paul riveted on a doctrine precisely because it is so effective in gutting that? Why? This atmosphere we live in is such that the story of Jesus that he told, remember, in Luke 18, would never fly. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a tax collector and one a Pharisee. And the Pharisee stood looking up into heaven and prayed thus with himself. I thank you, Father, that I'm not like other men. I tithe, keep the commandments. I'm not like this tax collector down here. But the tax collector, standing at a distance, would not lift up his eyes even to the ceiling, but beat upon his chest with his fists and cried, Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. To which Jesus responds, this man went down to his house justified. Not the other. For the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And he who exalts himself will be humbled. Well, that may not fly in our culture. But it was what? Paul believed with all his heart. Paul was in perfect sync with Jesus, which is why he is so riveted on this doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from works. Why is this important to undermine boasting for Paul? Because that's what the universe is about. It's all about God, not us. It's all about God getting glory, not us getting glory. The creation exists to call attention to the creator, not the creature. You exist and I exist to make much of God, not to get him to make much of us. Our joy does not reside deeply in self-exaltation, it resides in God-exaltation. And you know this. Test yourself. Is it not the case that there is more deep and lasting joy to be had as you stand at the foot of the Himalayas and let your heart and mind and eyes be drawn up into the mountains and behold them is not more deep and lasting joy to be had there than to stand in front of the mirror and behold that. You were made for the Himalayas, not the mirror. I promise you. You were made 
to make much of God. You were made to enjoy making much of God. And our whole century has been bent on convincing you of the exact opposite. Namely, you were made to be made much of. We know we're on the right track when we just look a few verses later in Romans 4, 20 and 21, where Paul explains that God gets glory when he's trusted. Look at this verse 20 of chapter 4. With respect to the promise of God, he, Abraham, did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that God, what he had promised, he was able to perform. So how do you get glory for God and not for yourself? Answer, you become like a little child who depends upon the promises of God for all you need. You cast yourself on God for mercy and that makes God look big and you look small. You get the joy, he gets the glory. That's reason number one. It's reason enough. He is riveted on justification by faith alone, apart from works, because he knows this doctrine undermines the boasting that robs God of his glory. The very reason for why the universe was created was that God might be made much of, we must decrease, he must increase. Reason number two. Paul is riveted on this doctrine of an imputed divine righteousness to us through faith and not works because he loves us and wants to preserve for us a blessing. This is last Sunday's sermon summed up. Last Sunday you saw in verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8 of chapter 4 this word blessing, blessed, blessed. And I just pled with you, hear the word blessing. Hear the word gospel. This is good news. It is not bad news that God wants to take away your ground of boasting. It's good news that he wants to take away your boasting. It's good news because in taking away your boasting, he replaces it with everlasting joy in him. And not yourself, which is no foundation. If you want joy that lasts forever and ever and ever increases, it must be a joy attached to an infinite object. And an infinitely glorious object. And there is only one, and his name is God. Therefore, in his pursuit to get boasting out of your life, he's blessing you. Blessing, blessing, blessing. And Paul and Jesus and God the Father love you and want to bless you this morning. They want to bless you with good news. And the blessing in verse 6 is, he wants to take a righteousness is what? Not yours. It's God's. Fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Consummate it on the cross and give it to you 
so that the righteousness that you have to have to stand before a holy God, you have completely and without any defect in Jesus Christ. That's his gift. That's the blessing. All sins forgiven, a perfect righteousness imputed is the blessing. And it only comes one way. Through faith apart from works. And that's why he's riveted on this doctrine. He loves you. He wants you to have the blessing. Yes, you've got to get boasting out of your life. But don't feel that is bad news. That's good news. That's like, do you have to take away the infection to make me well? Answer, yes, I have to take away the infection to make you well. If you want full joy in me, which is the only place it can be had forever and ever, ever increasing, you have to lay down my competitors. And self is the biggest competitor to God in the 20th century. This will go down, if Jesus tarries, as the century of the self. Perhaps right after the century of blood. There never was a more violent century, a more bloody century in the history of the world than the 20th century. But maybe it will go down first as the century of the self If you would be happy, you must be delivered from that. That's the second reason. Blessing. So here are the two B's if it helps you remember. Get rid of boasting and get a blessing. Be riveted on this glorious truth that there is a righteousness to be imputed to you by faith alone apart from works. Now, those are the two we've seen already. Let's go to today's text and see two new ones, two new reasons for why Paul will not lay this doctrine down yet. He will keep on with it and keep probing it and keep coming at it from different sides. Let's get the flow of the argument here and then draw out two implications, which become two more reasons for why he is so bent on staying with this great truth. Starting at verse 9, he's picking up on the blessing of verses 6 to 8, the one I was just talking about, and he says, verse 9, chapter 4, Is this blessing then on the circumcised, that is the Jews, for whom circumcision is such a defining ritual? Is this blessing... On the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? Now just stop there and ask why. Why does he ask that question? He asked it because for the Jews this was a very essential and defining reality. To spurn circumcision was to say in effect, I don't want to be a Jew. And I don't want Abraham to be my father. And I don't care about the promises. And I will not be an heir of the world. Verse 13. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Now Paul's question is, well, if circumcision is that important, we better ask, did the father of the Jews get right with God by means of circumcision or some other way. 
And what implication does that have for the uncircumcised nations of the world? Here's his answer. Comes in two steps. The first step is in the second half of verse 9. We say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Now that's step one in his answer. Let's take Abraham, he said. Not just anybody, but let's take Abraham, the father of the faithful, the father of the Jewish people. And let's ask about his righteousness. How did he get right with God? Step two, verse 10. How was his faith credited as righteousness? While he was circumcised or while he was uncircumcised? And here's his answer. Not while he was circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Which means... Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. That's what he just said. Genesis 15, 6, God credited Abraham's faith as righteousness. Genesis 17, circumcision, 12 or 20 years later, is given to Abraham. Paul looks at that. Hmm. Hmm. We're talking a covenant here with God who accepts Abraham, gives promises to Abraham, makes him the father of a people who will become heir of those promises made to him in chapter 15. When I reckon him righteous, God says, by faith, 12 years before the work. Of circumcision. Hmm. And he draws a conclusion. Getting right with God for Abraham did not happen through circumcision. It happened through faith. Apart from circumcision. So he's on the same issue here. Getting right with God through faith alone. Apart from. And then circumcision becomes a typical work of the law here. All right. Now he draws out inferences, two huge ones, which become reason three and reason four for why he's so riveted on this truth of justification by faith alone, apart from works. Reason one was it undermines boasting. Reason two was it gets a blessing and preserves a blessing for you. Now, here's reason three that I draw out from this text. Paul is riveted here on this truth because he wants us to see and get right the proper place of works and obedience in the Christian life in relation to justification. I know I've been hammering like Paul has been hammering away. At the phrase, apart from works, justification, getting right with God, by faith, alone, apart from works, undercuts boasting, gets a blessing, glorifies God. Well, what then about works? What about obedience? What about circumcision? What about the other 
things that the law has to teach us. And in this text, Paul now, in verse 11, draws out a proper positioning of works in relation to those things. How does he do it? Let's read it. Verse 11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. Now, do you see what he's saying here about the place of the obedience of circumcision? Here is the promise made as Abraham looks up into the sky. He trusts God for doing the impossible and God credits his helpless childlike trust to him as righteousness. Years later comes this command to be circumcised. And now Paul puts on it two names which describe how the law or works relate to faith and justification. Word number one, sign. Word number two, Seal. Let's read it again. So you see I'm not making those up with some kind of alliterative flourish here. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith which he already had while he was still uncircumcised. Now this is a tremendously important programmatic, theological statement about how your life today, Christian, relates to what happened to you when you got saved. Your life today, call it one big circumcision. The cutting away of the old while the new comes into being is not the foundation of your justification with God. It is the sign of the foundation of the justification of God. Namely, the righteousness of God imputed to you through faith alone, which you had before you did one good deed. Because... Just to put in a little explanatory parenthesis, there are no good deeds that don't come from faith. And therefore, you got to have faith before you can do a good deed. And therefore, if you get right with God by faith, you have to get right with God before you do any good deed. There ain't no such thing as good deeds before faith. There is only disobedience. They look good. Believe me, they look good. But they are rebel imitations of an unbelieving heart. Therefore, we are right with God one way, faith alone. What then, John Piper, becomes of obedience? What becomes of works? For example, circumcision if you're a Jew. Answer, call it sign. Call it seal. And you'll get it right. We need to obey. We need to be transformed. 
We need to become more and more like Jesus so that there will be signs, evidences, fruit to show that the tree is good. That is, there was faith and there is faith. So now you have some words. Words are so helpful. As maddening as they can be, you have some here. Call your struggles for obedience and the fight. Sign. Call it seal. Don't call it foundation. Don't call it instrument of getting right with God. Don't call it means of justification. Call it evidence. Call it sign. Call it seal. Call it fruit. Call it what it is. But don't get it underneath faith. Because if you do, you will be in bondage for the rest of your life. Trying to be good enough for God to accept you. And you can't be. Ever. So if there's going to be any acceptance with God, any blessing, any good news, any peace, our righteousness must be imputed to us from God through Christ by faith apart from works. And that's the third reason why Paul is riveted here. It orients obedience in the right place. Subsequent and sign-like and seal-like, not prior and foundation. Finally, number four. The reason Paul is riveted here on this truth of justification by faith alone, apart from works, is because it opens the door of salvation to all the peoples of the world, whether they're Jews or not. All the white folks and all the black folks and all the yellow folks and all the red folks and every sub-ethnic group among the races Hispanic and Asian and Somali and Ethiopian and Turkish and Kosovar and Kazakh and Uzbek and Maninka and Sukumu. Let's see it. Verse 11. Listen, now we'll read it all the way to the end and watch Paul begin to burn in his passion as the first great suffering missionary. Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That righteousness might be credited to them. Do you see the magnitude of the door he just opened? I looked over here in the first service and I saw the porches and I looked back there and I saw the Johnsons. I looked everywhere. I saw missionaries. So here I'm looking out and they're missionaries and they're missionaries in the making. 
And I was so thankful that a, that a, a visitor walked up at the end of the, the uh, last service and he said, you stirred up in me something that hasn't been stirred up for a long time. Namely, a desire to share my faith. And I just wanted to weep with joy. <laughs> yes, you got it. Because this last reason, why is Paul so riveted on this doctrine? That there is a righteousness from God through Christ to be imputed to us by faith alone, apart from works like circumcision. Why is he so fixated on this? Now here's the fourth reason. Circumcision stands basically for Judaism. With all of its dietary laws and all of its sacrificial system and all of its rituals and all of its temple sacrifices. And under that weight, Judaism in the Old Testament times could not be the kind of missionary religion that someday God's people were destined to be. How do you transport the tabernacle? How do you take circumcision? How do you take all these dietary restrictions? How do you take all these ceremonial things to Papua New Guinea with the bluets? And commend them to all the tribes, untold number of languages there in those islands. There's no way it's going to happen. Judaism in the Old Testament was by and large a come-see religion, not a go-tell religion. I say by and large, only. The queen of the south will come from the ends of the earth to behold the wisdom of Solomon. And she will behold his great castle and this wonderful thing that he's done in expanding the kingdom. And, and she will say, your God is great and your wisdom is great. And then she goes home. That's the kind of evangelism that by and large happened in the Old Testament. Now, Paul's heart burns with another passion. And I want this church to burn with another passion, which is why, though we are heading straight into a building project to replace that dilapidated old building over there, I tremble lest we become a come-see religion. I don't think we are. I think God has had mercy upon us. I think he has made this a base of operations. I think he's made it a launching pad. I think he's gone, given some of you enough radical commitment to Jesus that you can leave us anytime and lay down your life anywhere that God calls. But that's his passion. That's Paul's passion. And that's why he cares about this doctrine. Because he looked and when he saw that Chapter 15 comes before chapter 17. And that the reckoning of righteousness and the establishing of a covenant relationship with this pagan Ur of the Chaldees moon worshiper happens through faith alone. And then he sees the law beginning here in circumcision coming years later. He thinks and he says, yes, the real thing, the essence of the matter. Real unity with God comes apart from those things. And there was a great battle fought in Acts chapter 15 over this, was there not? 
And Paul, praise God, won that battle because God was on his side. And now circumcision, that is Judaism, is not required. You don't have to be a proselyte, not even a kosher proselyte, to be a part of the children of Abraham. You see that? He became the father of all those, including those who were not circumcised, but had the faith of Abraham. That's the point here. We're going to see more and more of this. Our message now is perfectly suited for every people group, every color, every educational level, level, every socioeconomic level. Because the one thing, according to Paul's message, that gets you right with God and sets you on the sign, seal, form of life called Christianity is faith. And what is faith? It is the most accessible act of the human heart in the universe. Nothing, nothing is easier than faith. Because it is a non-thing, almost. It is a... Anybody can do that. You don't need legs. You don't need balance. Fall on Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Depend on a righteousness that is not your own. This is not hard. This is not bad news. This is not a burden. Do you remember the heart of Jesus as he looked into the eyes of the lawyers and the Pharisees and the scribes of his day? And you could almost see fire shooting out of his eyes when he said, You load men with burdens so heavy they cannot bear and you don't lift one finger to help them. That is not what Paul is doing in these chapters. He is laboring and laboring and laboring to lift your load off of you and put it 12 years down the line called sign. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is, say it, and my burden is, there is one, there is a yoke, there is a burden, there is obedience to be done, but it is sign and it is seal of a glorious reality possessed in the easiest possible way that has no cultural hindrances. No educational hindrances. No ethnic racial hindrances. The only hindrance is pride. Everybody can trust Christ. If they just will. There's no performance of ritual here. There's no performance of an educational level here. There's no performance of a cultural status here. The fourth reason why Paul is excited about an imputed righteousness from God given to people apart from works through faith alone is because he's an evangelist. He's a missionary. He cares about Spain. He cares about England. He cares about America. And he's on his way no matter what it costs. So that when they tried to stop him from going, he said, I'm ready to 
die in Jerusalem. Don't you get it? Don't you get it? I've got a glorious message for every people group in the world, and I'm on planet Earth to get it to them so that they can stop making much of themselves and have the everlasting joy of making much of God. May that be what burns in our church. So let me close by summing up these four. I'll turn them into exhortations. Put away boasting by means of faith alone. Get a blessing, imputed righteousness and forgiveness by means of faith alone. Get your obedience oriented in the right place after justification as sign of faith, not under justification as basis. And be about the business of telling this glorious news to everybody you can. Because there is nobody whose race or whose educational standing or maybe the hardest of all, track record, whose track record of raunchiness has to exclude them. Nobody. God is able to bring anybody to the simplest of all acts, dependence on mercy. Now I want us to sing. I didn't quote it earlier, but I'm going to quote it now and make my application and then sing. Just went out of my mind for some reason, but here it is. Back to Charles Wesley. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. You can go there if you want, but listen carefully while you're going there. It's page 130 in your hymnal, but listen mainly. Third verse, he breaks the power of canceled sin. Do you hear the megaton of theology in that phrase? He breaks the power of canceled sin. First you got canceled sin. Then you got broken sin. And this comes before this. You get that? And if this isn't canceled in your life by means of faith alone, apart from works alone, you'll never break its power. If you try to get these flip-flopped, like so many people do, it's called legalism, and say, I'm going to break the power of this thing so God will like me, you'll be in bondage all your life. But if you will let... Christ cancel your sins by resting in Him alone and receive a free, imputed righteousness of God through Christ from Him by faith alone, then maybe 12 years from now, it'll be broken. And if you say, whoop, you got that much patience in this church? Try us. Twelve years of warfare is not twelve years of nothing. And the warfare counts with God as a sign as well as the victory. And now receive a benediction. And let me just uh, put it like this. May the Lord remove from you all boasting except in the Lord. By faith alone.
And may the Lord grant to you a blessing of imputed righteousness by faith alone. And may the Lord help you to see where obedience fits in as sign and seal rather than foundation of your standing with God. And may you all have a passion to share this message with all the people and all the peoples that you possibly can. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to this message by John Piper, pastor for preaching at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit Desiring God online at www.desiringgod.org. There you'll find hundreds of sermons, articles, radio broadcasts, and much more, all available to you at no charge. Our online store carries all of Pastor John's books, audio, and video resources. You can also stay up to date on what's new at Desiring God. Again, our website is www.desiringgod.org. Or call us toll-free at 1-888-346-4700. Our mailing address is Desiring God, 2601 East Franklin Avenue, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55406. Desiring God exists to help you make God your treasure, because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him.